Good morning, everyone. That's fantastic for the first session. That's great. All right, this morning we're going to look at how the Lord Jesus Christ treated the religious leaders. And remember what we said last night, that the Lord Jesus Christ had two great passions. One was his incredible love for his God. He would do anything for his God. But accompanied with that was his incredible love for people. He wanted to save as many people as he possibly could for the kingdom. And it didn't matter who they were, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, sinner, righteous. That was his great mission on earth and it was motivated, as we said, by his incredible love for his God and for the people he would save for the kingdom. The aim of our studies is, first of all, to see how God deals with us. And the thing that comes out, as we mentioned last night, is his incredible patience. That's the first issue. But secondly, and we emphasise this point very, very strongly, because all of us need to improve in the way in which we deal with our brethren and sisters. And I think as time goes on, as we get closer to the time of the end, it will be a problem with all of us to make sure that we're dealing with each other in the right way. The things that are out there in the world, like aggression and doing things behind people's back and getting involved in the gossip circle is something that we are determined will not be part of our life. Interestingly enough, when the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with these religious leaders, quite often he was very, very angry. In a sense, we say that's so out of character for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing that made the Lord Jesus Christ so angry is, first of all, the character of these men, but secondly, their attitude. Their attitude was the exact opposite of his. These men's mission was to stop people entering the kingdom because we want it exclusively for ourselves. You might say, hang on, how, how did they do that? How on earth would they stop people entering the kingdom? One of the main things they did is that they introduced things that would compete and not just compete, it would actually overshadow the word of God. You've probably already heard of the Talmud. The Talmud was two books that were put together that was combined, first of all, commentaries of the rabbis. The rabbis had all different commentaries and they compiled them all together and put them in a book and they also got Jewish experience over the centuries and they combined both these books into the Talmud. You might say, well, that's okay, it's a commentary on the Bible, what's, what's the problem? In the end, the Talmud was regarded as being above the law itself and if you've got a disagreement between the Talmud and the law, the Talmud was always accepted. And in the end, it was a greater crime to break, to break the Talmud than it was to break the law itself. And we've put this as our first study. Because quite often you can think in the way we deal with people, we show love and it really doesn't matter what they believe. The Lord says that is totally and absolutely incorrect. The very first basis when we deal with people is to make sure we have the correct belief. And yes, the Lord was unbelievably loving and patient but it was only on the basis of having a correct belief in the Bible. And the correct belief would be found in the Bible, definitely not in the Talmud. But as far as the Pharisees were concerned, it even got worse. 
the Pharisees had what they regarded as the oral law. And what I mean by that is they all understood that God wrote down the law of Moses and gave it to Moses. But there was something else. What Moses did is spoke some extra special laws that he gave to Joshua. He didn't write them down, he spoke it to Joshua and then Joshua handed it down through the prophets finally to the great men of their synagogue and finally to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, we have this special knowledge that's been handed down orally over the centuries. Now, look, there was no proof or evidence of this but the Pharisees accepted this as absolute fact. And this extra oral law was part of this system that the Lord says is impossible to keep. It's a burden that's too hard to bear. In actual fact, brothers and sisters in the truth back in those times were so discouraged they said, look, it's all too hard. And they gave up and they left the truth. Frivolous, stupid things. Like they would sit down and discuss can we eat an egg that a chicken has laid on the Sabbath day? Oh, no, definitely not. Or you've got a herb garden, you've got a nice scrambled egg and you rush out and get a nice piece of basil. Ah, don't put it in the scrambled egg. Make sure you cut off 10% of this little herb and give that to God. Absolutely and totally ridiculous. And because they're so hung up about keeping all these silly little laws, the relationship with God was totally lost. And these frivolous things diverted people's attention away from God and that's what made the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely furious. The spiritual condition of the people was very, very bad and these men were at fault. So what a shocking situation. First of all, you've got a law you can't keep and then these men came up with even more laws. Now, the only thing that can happen in this situation is the leaders became hypocrites, actors, pretending they are righteous. And so therefore their version of the law meant that things that people could see you would meticulously keep, but things that people didn't know about, what you did at home or what was going on in your head, it didn't matter. But as far as the everyday, honest, humble people, they said it's all too hard and they gave up. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ had so many followers because he came to the people and he said, yes, the law cannot be kept perfectly. But for those who try and overcome, forgiveness will come through me. And above all, his message, and our message has to be exactly the same, is positive and encouraging. Yes, every single one of us can be in the kingdom through the forgiveness and the motivation that comes from our Lord. The Lord said, once you fall in love with me and have incredible gratitude to me, that will drive you to the kingdom. doesn't matter where you are now. All of you through this have the potential to be in the kingdom. He inspired people to change. Now, brothers and sisters, I'll, I'll challenge you slightly. When we're talking about traditions, doesn't mean the Lord is saying that we should get rid of all our Christadelphian traditions. I mean, they're the commands of men, get rid of them. It's interesting, I had a very, very good discussion with our teenagers. The teenagers were absolutely brilliant. I mean, they first of all listened, which was quite amazing. They even laughed at my jokes. They were all being polite, they weren't funny, but that was great. But I said to them, give me an example of traditions, some of our Christadelphian traditions. And someone came up with a very good one. 
they came up with the cloth that we put over the emblems. Right? It doesn't matter where you go, everyone changes the way we do things, but every ecclesia has the cloth over the emblems. And I said, well, that's a tradition of men. Why should we do that? And a young person came up with a very powerful answer. He said, there is nothing bad behind that tradition. There is no problem, therefore, with keeping that tradition. And if we don't have that tradition, older brethren and sisters who we love and respect will be offended and it will cause their service to be hindered. And that showed remarkable maturity. The overwhelming majority of the traditions of the Pharisees, the Lord said, observe and do. Matthew 23 and verse 3, the things that they tell you to do, observe and do. But on the rare occasions when the Pharisees have a tradition that goes against the spirit of the truth, no way should we keep those traditions. And it's the same for us. And I believe that the traditions we have do do not go against the spirit of the truth. And therefore, the words of the Lord apply in Matthew 23 and verse 3, observe and do them because we don't want others to be offended and stumble in the things of the truth. Now let's come across to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and at verse 13. It's the first public act of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to see a huge difference here in John chapter 2 between the Lord and the religious leaders. And we're going to see again the Lord is very, very angry towards these people. You wonder, well, does the Lord suddenly get angry about what he sees in the temple, the buying and selling? No, no, it's very, very important to realise in Mark chapter 11 and at verse 11, the day before he had a good look around to see what was going on. And he spent all night thinking about what he should do. And the next morning when he comes in verse 14, he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves in the changes of money sitting. And the Lord is furious. Basically, it's the area of the court of the Gentiles. Just picture this. A huge flat area. You've got Herod's temple, which is about six or seven stories high. And in front of you, you've got the court of the Gentiles, the only area that the Gentiles had to come along and worship their God. A huge area. It's two football fields long by five football fields wide, the area of ten full football fields. And it is crowded with thousands of cows and sheep and doves. And can you imagine the noise and the smell? It would have been shocking. But the worst thing is the changes of money. There would have been the bartering going on and the yelling and the screaming, particularly at the changes of money. As we all know the story, the Jews said, oh no, we can't have the rotten Roman money used here in the temple. It's got Caesar's head on the coin. You've got to change that into temple money. And of course, as people would come up year by year, it got more and more expensive, a bigger and bigger rip-off. And in the end, people were so upset, in the end they'd resort to physical violence. That's how angry they got. And the Lord, in verse 15, is furious. Why? because his father is being dishonoured. But secondly, what upsets him in John 2 and at verse 15 is the attitude of the religious leaders. Why did they set up these cows and sheep and doves in the court of the Gentiles? It was ridiculous. It was incredibly difficult to get thousands of huge cows up the stairs onto this flat area. Right next to the temple, for two miles long, there was an area set up stalls to sell these animals at the bottom level of the temple, outside the temple. 
Why on earth did they bring them up into the court of the Gentiles? And the answer to that is to show their absolute contempt for the Gentiles. They wanted to fill that court with these animals to make it impossible for Gentiles to come and worship. Beautiful people like Cornelius. And the Jews said, we prefer clean animals in the court of the Gentiles than dirty Gentile dogs. But their attitude actually affected Jews as well. In particular, poor Jews. Some who would make their way from right in the north of Israel and they'd come down and they'd have to leave the temple bitterly disappointed. They could not even afford the most meagre offering of the doves from the sons of Amos. And their attitude to God and particularly their attitude to Gentiles who wanted to come into the truth causes the Lord to be furious. And in verse 15 he picks up a scourge. The word scourge is a Roman whip. And you get the picture of the Lord standing in front of this huge area, cracking this whip and driving them all out. But that's not the point. Because you'll notice in verse 15, it is a whip of small cords, which means rushes or reeds. He picks up these reeds that would grow in between the marble. It didn't achieve anything. The point that this verse is making, it's not the whip, but it's the hot, pure indignation seen in the Lord's eyes that caused a lot of them to be driven out. Can you imagine that? An area of 10 football fields and the Lord starts at the corner and starts to drive the men and the animals out. Get out of here. Don't make my father's house a market. And a lot of them fled for their lives. You know, there's a sense of humour here. We're talking about thousands of cows and goats that he drove out. How did he do this? There were three entrances. Two of the entrances were downstairs. Now, if you know anything about cows, it's virtually impossible to drive cows downstairs. But there is one place that it was very easy to drive the cows out. There was a ramp leading from the more posh area of Jerusalem where the scribes and the Pharisees lived. And there was a fantastic ramp that went right over the Tyrophenean Valley so these leaders would be able to get right to the temple without being defiled by the common people. That's the obvious place to drive thousands of these cows. Can you picture it? The Pharisees trying to get home, treading through all whatever they had to tread through in their posh gardens and their lawns, all these thousands of cows running around. That's just an aside that appeals to my ridiculous sense of humour. He gets a lot of them out and then he comes back and he overturns, as we all know, turns over completely the tables of money and there's coins rolling all over the place. And in verse 16, he comes to those who sold doves. He doesn't let them go because they're only going to come back anyway. And this young carpenter in the simple clothes and the despised accent of the Galileans or the Australians says, don't make my father's house a market. Religion is all about, for me and my gain, it's all about making money and stopping people entering the kingdom. And in verse 17, the incredible zeal of the Lord to get people to come into the truth and the zeal of the Lord for his God absolutely amazed the disciples. The Lord was normally so slow to act, but zeal is eating him up. And finally, in verse 18, after quite an interval, the religious leaders regain their composure and say, what right have you got to tell us what to do? But the issue is they are already condemned. They had already fled. They knew what the Lord was saying was right. You know, it's very important to realise what's happening here. It's how the Lord treated people and when people were having a go at him, 
the Lord would say nothing. When they are cruel to him, he would not respond. But when people were having a go at his God and when people were trying to stop believers coming into the truth, men would shiver before his righteous anger. And again, very powerfully, here is how we should deal with others with a perfect blend of goodness and severity. As we mentioned last night, in the case of Judas, he let the situation go on for years. But sometimes you have to act straight away. And that was this time now. And he deals with the situation with a perfect blend of judgment and mercy. He knew when to speak and when not to speak. And we need to try and develop the same judgment ourselves. There's another incident in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. This time, the people who come to Jesus are scribes and Pharisees of Jerusalem. Oh, these were the worst sort. The Pharisees of Galilee were far more reasonable and until interference from these men... They accepted the Lord as a rabbi or a teacher and invited him to teach in their synagogues. But these Pharisees, the Pharisees of Jerusalem, were very, very, very much hung up on the laws of the Jews and they were particularly great hypocrites. And the Lord really highlights their problem. Verse 8. These people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's the first issue. They pretend to love God, but that's the very first issue. There is no love of God at all. And the second problem, they're wasting their time worshipping me because they teach for doctrines the commands of men. Realise what that's saying. The commands of men are doctrines. Now, we also, brothers and sisters, have doctrines. And we asked the teenagers this question, what is a doctrine? And they came up with the right answer, it is something that we believe to be absolutely true because we are confident they are the words of God. And the Lord gets stuck into them because these people believe the commands of men were the doctrines of God. And that's very, very vital when we're dealing with other people. The first thing we need to have is correct belief. You know, sometimes we get the idea, based on what the Christians in the world say, that we need to show love to people and what they believe does not matter. No, no, no. The Lord says the only basis that we can have of accepting people into the truth is right belief or doctrine based on the Word of God. Now, later on in verse 12, the disciples come to him and say, um, Lord, do you know the Pharisees were a little bit offended at what you had to say? Almost implying perhaps you should apologise. Now look what the Lord says. Sometimes you, you find it hard to believe what the Lord says in verse 13. He answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone, let them go. Now, can you believe that's coming out of the Lord's mouth? The Lord was desperate to hold on to people. He did everything he could to hold on to people. People like Judas, right up until the very end, trying to hold on to them. But the Lord says about the scribes and Pharisees, no, let them go. Why? 
because he was absolutely confident they would not change. And why wouldn't they change? It's worth noting, next to verse 12, Matthew 13 and at verse 9, which says, they have deliberately closed their ears. In other words, they say, I don't care if what you're saying is true. I don't care if you can convince me what you're saying is true. I am refusing to listen. And that's why these Pharisees would not change. You know, we have another encounter. Come across and have a look at this. This is probably one of the most uncomfortable meals ever. Luke 11 and verse 37. Luke 11, verse 37. As he spoke, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. Now, dine is the equivalent to what we would call brunch. Do you use that expression here? Combination of breakfast and lunch? I don't like the idea because being a fat boy, I kind of get the idea I'm going to miss out on one meal. So I like to have breakfast and lunch and dinner. I don't like the combining idea. But it used to happen back then. Now, notice what verse 37 says. He went in and sat straight down to meet. So you've got this beautiful table with all the chairs around the table and the Lord Jesus Christ walks straight in and sits down. Verse 38, when the Pharisee, that is the host saw it, he was absolutely amazed because the Lord had not washed before dinner. The Lord's the only one sitting down. The rest of the disciples are going through this, sorry, the rest of the Pharisees are going through this very elaborate washing process. It's almost like, you know, the surgeons do scrubbing up before an operation and then they walk to the table with all the water dripping down. That's exactly what the Pharisees would do. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, washing was a very serious matter. You might say, well, hang on, this is just another command of men. What's the problem? It's just simply washing your hands before you have a meal. Why didn't the Lord go along with it? I mean, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, they believed this was so important that if you did not wash before a meal, it was basically blasphemy. Now, why didn't he wash? Other commands of men, as we've already said, he said, just go along with. The Lord says... There's an attitude behind the washing of hands that makes me absolutely furious. Now keep your hand in Luke chapter 11 and come back to Mark chapter 7. A hand or a foot, whatever you want to put in that, or a shoe. Mark chapter 7. Right, so hand in Luke 11 and come back to Mark chapter 7. Right, We're going to see, this is one of the rare commands of men that he said, don't go along with because there's a very bad attitude behind it. And it's Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. Again, the Pharisees come together and in verse 2 they're amazed that the disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashed hands. Verse 3, the Pharisees, and therefore all the Jews, it's so important, make sure everyone does this, and it even happens in Israel today, except they wash their hands often. And notice what the margin says, diligently, with the fist up to the elbow. It's exactly what we are talking about before, this very elaborate hand-washing ceremony. But notice what it says, holding the, tra- the tradition of the elders. And verse 4 is the key. It's particularly when they come from the market. Except they wash, they eat not. Now, 
What is it about the markets that cause these Pharisees to want to come home and wash their hands thoroughly? Are they dirty? Oh no, you can be guaranteed that at the marketplace it would be meticulously clean. But there's something that happens at the markets that the Pharisees don't like. The Pharisees call themselves separate ones. And generally when they walk along with their flowing garments, people get out of the way. Or if no one gets out of the way, they make sure they keep a four-foot distance from other people so you're not defiled by people. But when you're confined into the market, sometimes you've got to touch the dirty, filthy common people. And they can't wait to get home and come along to the tap and wash themselves clean. And the reason why the Lord did not go ahead and did not agree with this tradition of men, the washing of hands, is because it highlighted the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. They had a passion for themselves and they actively tried to keep people out of the kingdom. Whereas the Lord was the exact opposite. He worked with the common people. In the chapter before Mark 7, Mark chapter 6 and at verse 56, the Lord came in contact with the common people. Whithersoever he entered into the villages or the cities or the country, they laid the sick in the streets. And that word streets is the marketplace and besought him that they might touch him. The Lord was not defiled by coming in contact with the common people. In actual fact, he healed them by inspiring them to change. He had a passion that everyone might come into the truth and therefore he absolutely refused to wash point blank because the washing showed people had the exact opposite attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can imagine it. You know what happens when you're having a meal and and an awkward event happens. Everyone's very, very embarrassed and they get very, very excited about eating their scrambled eggs. You'll think I'm hung up about chickens and scrambled eggs. Years ago I was a chicken farmer so I suppose it all keeps coming out, doesn't it? You know, there'd be a lot of raised eyebrows. (laughs) Disgusting. Now the Lord knows exactly what's going on. Verse 37 The Lord says unto him, that is the host, he says, you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. He speaks of the custom. Not only do they wash their hands, but they make sure that they wash the plate so much it's gleaming. When you're at the table, you almost need sunglasses. It's so bright, it's so clean, it's so white. And he says, you are exactly the same. You're sitting there with your beautiful white garments on, but within, that is in your mind and in your heart, that is the things you think about and the things that you love are filled with ravening and the word ravening in verse 38 means money taken by extortion or dishonesty, you're stealing from widows, you sell widows' houses from underneath them and wickedness which was moral depravity. So as long as everything looks alright, it doesn't matter what's going on in your mind. And the Lord uses such strong language. You fools. You are stupid and ignorant. Verse 41. Don't worry about washing. But instead of that, verse 41, give arms of such things as you have and then you will be clean. If you want to purify yourselves, don't worry about washing your hands. Show your repentance by giving what you have. 
the money that you have extorted, give back to these widows and then give the money that you have left over, give it to the poor. Let it hurt your pockets. And in verse 42, Woe unto you, Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and you pass over the judgment and love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. And so therefore, because they hung up on keeping all these silly little commands, they missed the great issue of judgment, which is making sure we've got the right belief, it is absolutely crucial, and love for God and your brethren and sisters. And here the Lord says, I've got a passion to save as many people as I possibly can for the kingdom. And that involves a blend of judgment and love. Now, verse 43, he really gets stuck into the scribes and Pharisees. And brothers and sisters, this is a big issue, particularly for the brethren. Woe unto you, Pharisees! You love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. Brethren, this is what's going to happen if you are not in the truth for the right reasons. This is what will happen when you lose your passion for God and your brethren and sisters. When you don't have that anymore, other things will cause you to be motivated to continue your involvement in the truth. And what is it? We'll love the uppermost seats. Literally this means you want to sit in the first seat. You want to be the ruler in your synagogue. You want to be in charge of your ecclesia and you want to make sure everything is done your way. And the other thing you love is greetings in the marketplace. As Matthew 23 and at verse 7 says, you love to be called rabbi or great teacher. You love the respect and the honour of people where? In the marketplace. You love to people to come along to you in the marketplace and pat you on the back and say, oh, you're, you're, you're brilliant. Your teaching is absolutely brilliant. And you can't wait to get back home and wash away the filthy influence of the common people. Now, this meal, this brunch, is not going very well at all. It is very, very, very awkward. A lawyer wants to break the embarrassment He wants to take a bit of pressure off the host who is a Pharisee. It's probably a friend of his. So he says in verse 45, one of the lawyers say unto him, well, Master, you know, we're part of this as well. You're having a go at us as well. Well, the Lord says, yes, I am. And uh, in actual fact, you're even worse in some ways than the scribes and Pharisees. And this poor lawyer thinks, oh dear, why did I get involved in this? I'll get back to my scrambled egg. Oh, I mentioned eggs again. Woe unto you, verse 46, ye lawyers, ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not one of the burdens with one of your fingers. Lawyers, you do your bit to stop people entering the kingdom. You think it's great, ah, I've got another law. And they publish this law throughout Israel saying, I've got another law that you people must keep. And they pile people up with these laws, and in the end it becomes, as verse 46 says, grievous, oppressive. And people collapse and in the end they just give in and say, we can't do this. Well, they might still come along to the synagogue, but in their heart they say, I can't do this. And they come up to one of these lawyers and say, I just can't do this. 
And the lawyers in a very superior tone say, yeah, <laughs> you're just part of the common people. You might as well give up. And they kick them out of the ecclesia. They don't help at all. They don't even use one of their little fingers. How could they help? They could encourage people and say, yes, you can make it through forgiveness that comes through the Lord. And they refuse to do that. And he goes on from verse 47 to 51 and he says, you know, you're just like your fathers who killed the prophets. That same attitude will cause you to kill the greatest prophet of all. And why did they kill the Lord Jesus Christ? Because this prophet says you are wrong and they could not handle it because it went against their ego, their position, their respect and so therefore let's kill him. And all of them agreed, let's kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, be very, very careful, particularly the brethren, that we don't get involved in the politics of the Pharisees. That when we are having a disagreement with a brother, that we get very violent, aggressive and personal. Any discussion, brethren and sisters, let's have it based on the word of God. Verse 52, Woe unto you, lawyers, you've taken away the key of knowledge. Now you ask, what is the key of knowledge? Brothers and sisters, the key of knowledge is that the word of God is the greatest authority. They change that. There are other things that are just as important, if not more important, like the Talmud. And so he goes on to say, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then that were in the process, they're almost at the gate, about to walk in. You hinder. People look to you for guidance and you hinder them. And that's a very strong word. You stop them, you forbid them, you prevent them, you refuse them. And that's another reason why the Lord would get stuck into the scribes and the Pharisees to stop their very, very strong hold upon the people. Verse 53 and as he said these things unto them. In actual fact, it's worth noting in your margin, most translations translate, and as he said, they translate that as he's going out. That's unbelievable. Here is the most patient man who has ever been and he cannot stand to be in the same room with people with this shocking attitude that wanted to keep people out of the kingdom of God and he walks out. Oh, these scribes and Pharisees who are pretending to be so courteous and so hospitable, as soon as he stands up, they follow him out and there is a violent verbal attack upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that same sort of aggression and that same sort of violent attitude in the end caused them to want to kill the most wonderful and loving person who had ever, ever walked the face of this earth. And they all agreed. And when they went to get the Lord Jesus Christ and he said in John 18, I am he, they fell backwards to the ground. It's being made very clear to these religious leaders they can only get the Lord Jesus Christ because he is allowing you to take him. And the Lord had command over these leaders right until the very end. He was the master of the whole situation. You know, the great thing about the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ is the silence of the Lord. 
You know, many years ago, I, I witnessed one of the most powerful plays I've ever seen on the, cruci- on the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm not getting into the discussion of whether or not we should depict the Lord in a, in a play. But what was so powerful about that play were these religious leaders just screaming at the Lord. And in this play, it did depict what these people were like, arrogant and aggressive and the veins popping out in their neck as they're just screaming at the Lord Jesus Christ all night. And what was so powerful was the Lord did not say a thing. All the Lord said is contained in six verses. He said absolutely nothing. And in the end, the leaders really felt they were on trial and not the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the exhortation, after Brother Frank finished speaking, I sat there in my chair and tried to picture what it must have felt like for the Lord on the cross and I couldn't come anywhere near realising the agony and the shame that the Lord went through. Just picture the Lord Jesus Christ as he is put on that cross and the cross is put down in the hole in the ground and the weight, the entire weight of the Lord is supported by these nails. Can you imagine just the incredible agony Brothers and sisters, you've got to go close to the cross to realise what the Lord was saying. He said something over and over again. These men who for three and a half years did everything they could to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and stop people entering the kingdom, finally in the end caused him to be killed. And the Lord is saying something over and over again. And through gasps of absolute agony, the Lord is saying, Father, please, Father, please, Forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And he did this for the entire time, realising that only a foot below him, these men were saying absolutely anything they could to hurt him and to hurt his God. Ah, let God get him off the cross. That's if he will have him. That would have hurt the Lord so much. And over and over again, Father, please, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Brothers and sisters, in our first session, what we've emphasised is the great key how to treat people. It is very important that we have the balance of judgement. We need to have judgement to make sure we have the right belief that our doctrines are correct. It is very, very important. Don't think it just means we show love to everyone. Our doctrines must be correct. They must be based upon the Word of God. Secondly, we need to have a great passion for our God. Thirdly, we need to have a great passion to save as many people as we can for the kingdom. In our ecclesia, amongst our young people, and make sure that we are not discouraging our young people, but we are encouraging and inspiring our young people. If we don't have those three things, what we're going to find in our ecclesias, there will be fighting, aggression, division and groups. And if left unchecked, the tendency, particularly in us brethren, is to be the most important, that we love the honour of men. 
and we'll do whatever we can to get our own way and get control. And what happens is when that's happened and we're driven that we have to have things done our way, we'll lose our respect for the Word of God and we won't bother to study it as much. And people who we see are opposing my way. We'll deal with aggressively, we'll talk behind their back and we'll try to destroy them. Surely, brothers and sisters, it should be our passion to get as many people into the kingdom as we possibly can. And when we do that, division won't be there to the same extent. We'll be a family who sees the importance of the word of God. Personal preaching will fire along because we want to do everything we can to save people outside for the kingdom of God. And our own position and our own honour and our own control doesn't matter at all. And what will happen when we have these three things is that our ecclesia, unlike the temple in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, will be a happy, positive place. Everyone will want to come along to our ecclesia where people are inspired and built up and encouraged by the love of God that they can make it to God's kingdom.